This podcast is presented by Regions Bank. You're chasing your goals, and it's up to you how you want to get there. Let Regions Bank coach you with financial tips that fit your everyday grind. Visit regions.com slash next hyphen step to learn more. Regions, member FDIC. Hello and welcome to the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast. I'm Ralph Russo, the college football writer with the Associated Press, and I'm back this week after my colleague Rob Motti and our NFL team took over this podcast last week for some great Super Bowl coverage. I'd like to thank Rob and the gang for pumping out some great stuff from Miami and for giving me a little bit of a break. My guest this week is Dennis Dodd of CBS Sports. Late last week, Dennis reported that the Big Ten has submitted a proposal to the NCAA for legislative consideration that would tweak transfer rules and allow athletes in all sports to transfer one time without sitting out. We'll talk to Dennis about where that could be headed and what prompted the Big Ten ADs to push for a move that not so long ago would have been considered radical, and one that will probably have many of the coaches in their own league cringing. Plus, is the early signing period working in college football, and is there a way to create more parity at the top of the sport when most of the blue-chip players are signing with the same small group of schools? Thanks for listening to the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast. You can find us on Westwood One Podcast, Apple Podcast, and just about anywhere you get your podcasts. Please subscribe, and if so inclined, give us a good review. It helps college football fans find us, and it helps us find more college football fans. And away we go. Joining me on the podcast this week is my good friend Dennis Dodd from CBS Sports, who had a nice little scoop last week concerning the world of transfers in college football. Dennis, thanks so much for joining me from the metro area of the defending <laughs> uh, of the Super Bowl champion, the reigning Super Bowl champions. You are actually you actually live in Kansas. I, I live in Kansas. I do know the Kansas City Chiefs are in Missouri uh, and uh, just across the state line, but it is. Uh, it's a great time to be alive in the in the metro area, yeah. <laughs> well, I also know you're not necessarily a Chiefs fan, but that's uh, that's okay. I'm sure you can still enjoy the revelry and everything that went on with uh, Pat, Pat Mahomes there. So I want to get to the NCAA stuff and especially the transfer stuff. You reported and others have confirmed that the Big Ten athletic directors have put forth a proposal to essentially allow all athletes a one-time exception when it comes to transferring. That means one time you can transfer, you don't have to sit out. That is exists in a whole bunch of NCAA sports. It does not exist in the most prominent sports, football, basketball, both men's and women's, hockey and baseball. There might be one other I'm missing in there. First of all, I, I got to tell you, I wasn't shocked. I, it was great reporting by you. I wasn't shocked that it, it finally is going this direction. I think it's been sort of trending this way. Why are we here, and what do you think? Well, let, let's just start with, like, how, how did we get here? How did we get to the point where now something yeah. that seemed untenable not very long ago now is being proposed? 
I, I wasn't shocked like you. I think the surprise came that it came from such a powerful entity as the Big Ten. And the, way, the, the explanation, the way it was kind of explained to me was there's a sense of fairness. You know, if we don't do this now, uh, then we're going to have it foisted upon us in, in the term of the lawsuit. Um, but you, you referenced it up top. You're right. There are five schools or five sports that really inexplicably have to sit out. And 20, I think the other 20 uh, don't. And those are the so-called Olympic sports, country club sports, what have you. So there's a little bit of a racial um, component to it that men's and women's basketball and football together are made up of 55% minorities. Um, and so that that was a consideration, but I think it's just enlightenment on the part of the Big Ten, and and I think everybody else eventually that this is just the right thing to do. You you know you, you can't say it, it is true that players that stay in one institution uh, their whole careers fare better than those who transfer. Okay, then why? You know, why are those other 20 sports allowed to transfer uh, once in their career? So that that argument makes less sense. So, I, you know, I think it's coming. And then the, the next discussion is what does it look like, you know, when the screaming memes of football and basketball get a hold of it? They're, they're the coaches I'm talking about. They're just going to have to change. You know, it's something else on their plate for those millions of dollars in salary. So. I don't have much sympathy for them, as, as one AD in the Big Ten put it. Just, hey, recruit better players. Do a better job of evaluating. And that, that's really where their heads are at now. Yeah, and, and make sure the players that you do evaluate, make sure you're treating them right. Um, yep. Listen, it's still going to come down to playing time, but that's to a certain degree. It's a coach problem, right? I mean, that second or third stringer that you love to have around because it provides depth. Well, you know, tough. Like you're not going to be able. You're going to have yeah. to either figure out a way to make sure that everybody knows that you have open competition and that people have a fair chance to play. But the fact of the matter is, you might not be able to to stockpile on your roster. You know, a three and a four star or a five star that has to wait around that extra year or two to play. Yeah, and and we're already seeing it. Look, this Tate Martell is you know was going to transfer anyway from Ohio State uh, because he wanted to go play somewhere. Um, you know. And that point being that schools like Ohio State, the big ones, Clemson, won't have a problem. Everybody, everybody's winning, everybody's fine. Those who don't get playing time will go elsewhere. This just streamlines the process. And, you know, the likes of uh, Tom Mars, who's made a, a nice little side living representing these, uh, these kids that want transfer waiver appeals, is fully in support of it. It would put him, you know, basically out of business. Uh, you know, there'd be very few... I think uh, second time transfer waiver appeals, and they would probably be granted because in that case, it'd be the situation would be pretty dire. I would think. Let's talk. But let's talk he, about. He's in favor of it. Yeah. Yeah. Let's talk about that for a second because this is really a response to yeah. the waiver situation. Uh, at least you know I I I think it's pretty obvious that we got here a few years back. The NCAA created the portal. The portal is kind of kind of a euphemism for. 
some of the changes that were made. The portal is just a database, but the big change was mm-hmm. it was notification, yeah. notification, yeah. Rather notification rather than that rather than permission, right? And it allowed it took away the ability for schools and coaches to block a transfer or dictate where the kid goes. They had toyed with the idea of doing something like this, or maybe just eliminating the the, the exception for all sports and te- and telling every every athlete, no, everybody right. has to sit out now, just to make it uniform across the board. But the compromise was this waiver situation where, okay, we're going to put immediate eligibility back on the table, and now everybody who applies for a waiver could possibly be eligible to play immediately. Well, that created an expectation that now everybody gets their waiver, which is not the case. No. The, the, the percentage of the waiver hits is really hasn't gone up, but, but it seems that way. But it also pits students against other – like you have this situation where like now people look at Justin Fields and say, why did he get hit one and I didn't get one? And that's a mm-hmm. bad situation because you never want to put the athletes in a bad – Light, And that's sort of what the waiver situation has come to. And I think that created, you went back to exactly what they were trying to eliminate, which is bad headlines. Exactly. The, the, the waiver situation was always there. But it would always, uh, you could always transfer waiver appeal. And the, and the numbers were are basically constant. About 65% of the waiver appeals are granted because there's sort of extraordinary conditions. The problem, there are two problems. One, as you mentioned, the transfer portal uh, re- removed the permission by the coaches in the school, so that that created an issue. And number two, the transfer waiver appeal process, the deciding of it, was mysterious and not transparent on its face. So you, you wouldn't know why somebody got it and, and somebody didn't when it looked like a slam dunk in either direction. So it, it, it sort of eliminates that. And if, if the coaches want to complain about it, they're really at the heart of why this has all changed. They, you've got, I, keep, I, I keep a paragraph in every story I write about this at the bottom. Uh, you know, Bill Snyder at Iowa State blocked a, uh, I think he was a backup defensive back or, or backup receiver, receiver I think, yeah. out, out of spite uh, because the kid had lashed out on social media or something, just drew up a list of 35 schools he couldn't go to. Well, that's outrageous. Um, if they're student-athletes, if they're students first, which, you know, they're supposed to be, wink, wink, then they should have the ability to, to go pursue their education in theory, uh, even if it's playing time, wherever they want. Um, Nick Saban brought the kid in. What was His name was Jonathan Taylor, same as, uh, same yeah. as the Wisconsin but running a defensive back. tackle, right, in this defensive case, who had started his career at Georgia. Did, yeah, who the uh, – it's been kicked out of Georgia for uh, sexual assault allegations, and the exact same thing happened to Alabama. And he tried to defend himself. So it's it, their their actions as a group over the years really brought this on um, because they used you know those who have absolute power use it absolutely, and that's what they had. Yeah, and, and so now you get to the point where I think it, it seems like the one thing that was I, I heard when I was at the NCAA convention from talking to a few people in NIL, name, image, and likeness obviously dominated that convention, but in talking to a few people at uh, that convention about transfers, and even beforehand, you kept hearing the same refrain, which was consistency, consistency, consistency. We just want consistency across the board, and ultimately... Right. I mean, the only way you get consistency is to create a rule where everybody is treated the same. Right. Right. And look, when this is, if and when this is enacted, 
it, it, there'll be some bumps in the road, and, but it'll eventually be smoothed out where we're not even talking about it. I think one concern is, but, you know, you have to live with it is, you know, the rich getting richer and the, the group of five players being, you know, snatched from those, uh, from that division, but it's happening now. Um, you know, players will still, if they break out at that level, will want to go to a better program. But again, it's happening now. Um, and I think we're beyond the point of the group of five schools, I don't know, achieving any kind of parity, whether it's financial, physical, recruiting, or anything else. But, you know, that that's another issue that's going to have to be dealt with. They're either going to have to, you know, exist on that plane where they they are really playing for table scraps, or, you know, the Power Five just breaks away. Maybe that's another podcast, but well, it, it will exacerbate that situation. Let's get into that just a little bit, because you mentioned yeah. Group of Five. Um, but I would also well, say here. that it's even it, it's even starting to bleed. I'll give you the perfect example. I think it's, I think what you're also starting to see is the separation within the Power Five of the, the true yeah. haves and the and the we we have because we happen to get lucky and be in this conference. Now, there's a whole bunch of examples of that as far as off the field, but I'll take an on the field example. Look at Jamie Newman at Wake Forest. Again, a three-star recruit who I don't think anybody realized was this good. He breaks out under Dave Clawson, has a year and a half of really top-level play, and then he bounces to go to Georgia. Now, why? Because he realizes, hey, listen, Wake's great, but like the best we're ever going to do here is maybe we catch lightning in a bottle and get to the Orange Bowl. I want to play for a national championship. I want to play with with a bunch of five-star players because that also makes me look great when I move on to the next level. So I think you're even seeing it to a certain degree within the haves and have-nots where a player might break out at a developmental program like Wake Forest and then decide, you know what, I'm going to go play for Georgia and try to win a national title next year. I I totally agree. I think that's happened to the point that even within that, there's a super division now of schools that can even compete for a championship. I mean, in, in six years, only 11 teams have even been in the playoffs. And that, and that group of schools isn't going to expand very much in the next six years. You know, you, we know who's played for a championship. Maybe the, maybe the Pac-12 gets a team back in there. But, uh, you know, those schools have the most money. They have uh, the most resources. And, yes, even within the Power Five, I mean, there are schools that – that play just to get into a bowl and schools like Alabama where Nick Saban says we need to play 12 power fives a year. Well, that's not realistic, but they could do that and succeed. Broadening that out just a little bit, the idea that there's this super group of maybe five to ten schools that really has a chance. Because you talk about like schools that made the playoff. I think you said 11 have made the playoff. Yeah. You know, this leads back to playoff expansion. But before we get there, you can – aspire to be a playoff team because you know maybe things work out for you the way Michigan it worked out for Michigan State a few years back where they pull that big upset against a really great Ohio State team that's the one game they really needed to win everything else sort of you know they they win the miracle uh, punt game at Michigan at Michigan you get into the playoff but in reality you have no chance of really winning the playoff because then you get exposed by teams that are playing at a very different level. So there's a there's an area there where we're right, maybe a Pac-12 team can slide in. Hey, listen, Utah almost pulled it off this year before they got exposed to a certain degree in the Pac-12 championship game. But so it's it's who can get in the playoff and I think that's a relatively small 
group, but it, the, the much smaller group is who can really win the national championship. And that seems to be a group of maybe five, six teams, and almost all yeah. of them are in the SEC or the Southeast. To the, right, exactly. To, you know, Clemson has played in five of the six. Oklahoma had just been in all five, didn't get in this past season. You know, to the point that Oklahoma, which has won, is it five straight Big 12 titles, been in three straight playoffs, um, most most titles consecutively, I think of anybody since uh, maybe in the big since the big six days back in the 1950s with Oklahoma, and what what is their um, you know what is our perception of them? Continue can't play any defense, can't win the big one, just a one trick pony, and that's one hell of a program. But do you even put that put them in that five or six we're talking about? Even though they seem to be in the playoffs every year, it's Clemson. It's Alabama. I think LSU is going to be there now um, on a consistent basis, although we know for the moment they've lost a lot. But I think they can, they've proven they can reload and, and stay competitive. And even within that SEC West, I, I haven't seen, and maybe I'm wrong, I haven't seen the SEC West this competitive in a while with the addition of, uh, of uh, Leach and Lane. Um, they're going to they're gonna tweak some noses. They're going to knock somebody off. They're going to hurt people's seasons. Um, and everything that comes with that with competing in that league. So, yeah, I agree. And, I, and what are the ramifications of that? I, I don't know if an 18 playoff, except for giving, you know, an opportunity to a Memphis, which will quickly be knocked off in a, in a quarterfinal, um, does much about that. Well, but it also gives an opportunity for – Oklahoma to continually get in and for the Pac-12 to continually get in and for you know the and the idea behind that I I wrote a column about this and and again it was it was more of a it wasn't a strong take by me but it was like hey if we're looking for parity maybe expansion kind of creates that because now because right now what's happening with the Pac-12 is clearly People are recruiting yeah. against the Pac-12, saying, "Listen, you can't, you're not going to play in the playoff. If you're a great player, yeah. and their teams are going into California, these Southern teams and teams in the Midwest and Ohio State are going into California and Pac-12 footprint and saying, you want to play in the playoff? You can't stay here. You have to come play with us.' So at least right, if, yeah. if you have an expanded playoff, if you're the Big 12 and the Pac-12, and maybe to a certain d- degree the ACC, though obviously it's not hurting Clemson, you can say, listen, if you want to play in the playoff, you can come here. We will be in the playoff. Now, eventually, you might get, over years of that, you might get exposed to find out, well, you really can't win the national championship. But that maybe could help level things off a little bit. And again, yeah, I don't, just, I don't know if this is, there. I don't know if this yeah. is a huge problem, Dennis, because it's always sort of been a select group of teams that win the national championship. It just seems like it's, it's smaller it and more condensed and in one simple, one's part of the country now. It's, it's just been defined in a different way where, you know, the PAC 12 is now, it, it, it's really, I don't want to say irrelevant, but it's, it's on every level. Um, the networks of failure recruiting. I mean, this year I, I'm going to write a story at some point about, I've never seen, people reach across the country like Clemson and Alabama have to get not only players on the West Coast, but the best players on the West Coast. And they're telling them exactly what you just said. Do you want to play for a championship or not? Out of USC's backyard, you know, um, DJ Ugalele, and I forget, please forgive me for the pronunciation, the next great one, quarterback uh, from St. John Bosco in Southern California, Clemson, Bryce Young may start this year at Alabama certainly going to be in the mix. I just don't remember a time 
when it was like that. And that has to have a net negative effect on the Pac-12 because those players aren't there. They're, they're succeeding at other schools and keeping, keeping the Pac-12 schools out of it. So I think, I think it's significant, whether it's just as simple as, hey, maybe one day Larry Scott loses his job. But, you know, I, I don't know if anybody can help that, that situation right now. They just got to win games. To the point that, yeah, if you if you include conference champions in an 18 playoff, that solves the problem. But even then, I think you've got to have a threshold there. You can't risk having a nine and four, say uh, Northwest Northwestern from 2018, upsetting uh, Ohio State and getting in. You've got to have a threshold where a team's at least 10 and two or something like that. That's not always going to be the case in the Pac-12. I also do wonder if maybe, maybe the freedom of transfers can help yeah. with the parity. Now, because we talked about the idea that no, what's going to happen is these players are, who came in as three stars at smaller schools are going to jump to the bigger schools. But I also do wonder how much it might thin out some of and move some talent around when the kid who's a four star at Alabama shows up. And after his sophomore year, still hasn't really played much because he's kind of waiting his turn. If that kid, or maybe after the freshman year, goes, you know what? Maybe I'm better off getting more reps at another place. Maybe I'm I'm not necessarily sure. I, again, I think that there's probably yeah. more of a chance it works the other way, and you have kids transfer up. But I do wonder how much it might redistribute some talent that clusters. And we're 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 recording this a day before signing day. You know, so one of the things I hope to write about in the next 24 hours is this idea that again, this clustering of the four and five stars—they're really only going to a handful yeah. of schools—and that maybe they. They do that on signing day, but the free, more freedom to transfer redistributes them a year or two after. Now, that might be Pollyannish on my part, part but I do wonder if that could be a, a result of what happens when they change the transfer rules. Maybe, if they yeah, maybe the but even then, yeah, may, maybe, but even then, those four stars are going to go places with winning programs. And I wouldn't call UCLA or USC winning programs right now, even though they may have be above 500, um, you know, to the to, to the point that USC is the flagship program of not only the Pac-12 but of the West Coast. And uh, this, uh, I plan to write about this at some point too. I, I love Clay Helton to death, but the situation is almost untenable now, whether you like him or not. You know, what are they? Fiftieth in uh, fifty or below? In, I think they were. Uh, I think as of this morning, they were right outside the top sixty. I think they were just about 50. to break into the top sixty. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, boosters have just thrown up their hands and walked away uh, with their money. And, you know, I guess Mike Bone at uh, USC bought himself some time by not doing anything. But, you know, how much is that going to hurt them? How much is it going to hurt them if, in fact, Carol Fultz, the new president, has put the Knicks on Urban Meyer? You know, love him or hate him, uh, he's, he's a known commodity in the, in the coaching world. And the, the reports are that she says no Urban Meyer. Assuming he's interested, which I think he would be at USC, so that, that's going down a rabbit hole. But uh, I think legitimate 
uh, stuff to think about in this discussion. Before we take a quick break, I want to go back to the beginning of the discussion, the transfers, because I do want to seal one thing up. As far as you know, what is the timeline on that legislation? Going back to, again, we're, we're talking about a one-time exception. The Big Ten ADs have proposed it. It's something that could conceivably be put in front of a Division One council or a board of governors when. And listen, this is no. I don't think. I still don't think it's a slam dunk that this happens. But my instinct, and from talking to folks who I, I think this makes sure. sense at this point. Uh, so I'm wondering, a, what is your instinct? Do you think it'll pass? And b, what would be sort of a timetable for when it would? Well, I just checked. It is not on the legislative calendar for April. So the next time, uh, and that bears mentioning because NIL will be. We're going to get those recommendations from the working group and supposedly ready for January at the convention. So the next time it would be considered is, is January 2021. And implementation, it, fastest track would be 2021. But I would think there'd have to be some sort of phase in. I'm not sure of that, but there was, I think, with the transfer portal when it came online in October of 2018. This isn't exactly emergency legislation, because if you're considering it, you're going to kind of stiff arm any lawsuits that may be being thought about. So I would say earliest, I I know earliest, 2021. Okay, so we're going to take a quick break here in the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast. I'm talking with Dennis Dodd from CBS. We'll come back and talk a little signing day stuff, not necessarily where recruits are going, but more of we're a couple of years into this early signing period and how it's working out. You're listening to the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast. This podcast is presented by Regions Bank. You're chasing your goals, and it's up to you how you want to get there. Let Regions Bank coach you with financial tips that fit your everyday grind. Visit regions.com slash next hyphen step to learn more. Regions, member FDIC. And we're back on the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast. I'm talking with Dennis Dodd from CBS and Dennis, we are recording this, as I said earlier, a day before signing day. This is the opening of the traditional signing period, but it is now an afterthought to a certain degree. It's, yeah. it's a formality. It's schools buttoning things up. It's a few straggling blue chippers who decided to wait a little bit, deciding to sign, because most of the work has was done now, and the early signing period in December is now the signing period. So from you talking to ADs, talking to coaches, just your own personal observations, how is this working out? I, I think it's worked out fine. I think everybody's gotten used to it. There's, the sky hasn't fallen as a lot of people that were against it predicted. And you knew, Ralph, you knew this was going to happen. Given, given the option of two signing dates, the coaches were going to try to get everybody in the basket on the first. You know, it happened when they hit, uh, established two in basketball where the second was almost irrelevant. This isn't quite that way. I mean, there's still, there were five coaching changes after the early signing period on December 20th. So those coaches had to scramble, and, and, they, and they get a chance to, to fill their classes. Um, and I, I did talk to Greg Sankey, the SEC commissioner, who, is, who was and is against the early signing period, and he pointed to that and said, you know, those, all those kids should be, uh, should be allowed to transfer. And there is, there's, there is that you know, there is that discussion if a coach leaves after signing in a class in that early signing day. Um, but I, I think it's an asterisk to this discussion. It's, it's worked out fine. Um, 
you know, it's inconvenient, I think, that it comes for a lot of coaches either during bowl prep uh, in mid to late December. But the, the other part of it is they, they get it done. or they, they get it done as much as they can. So, you know, you're already working on next year's juniors. I went to, uh, oh, who was it, Tom Herman, his first year at Texas. And I, I'm trying to think if that was the first year of the early I think it was. I not. think it might have been. I think yeah. he's been there as I long as this has been in. Is, you know, all I remember is the assistants walking down the halls with uh, cell phones pressed to their ear, talking to juniors for the next year, saying, hey, yeah, you, you can be part of this. Get in now. Because they were done. You know, they were done in the early signing period. Yeah, it is interesting how this has worked out. You, I, I also think like there were absolutely some unintended consequences. I, I, I should say the unintended, but but also forecasted. So it wasn't like these things yeah. that are coming up that are problems uh, weren't necessarily things that were on folks' radar. But I also think it more speaks to no matter how you do this, there will be issues, right? You're at the sure. point now where the, the recruiting process is 24-7, 365, and the hiring and firing process has been strung out much longer and, and much more. It's a never-ending sort of uh, silly season cycle. So the fact that those two things have now sort of become uh, expansive, right? The the recruiting process has become expansive. It's a year-round thing. And the hiring process to a certain degree, has has become more expansive and larger than ever before. I don't know how there is a possible way to rectify this, because I've heard people say, how about an early period in August? Or maybe going back to the way it was, because, you know, then you wouldn't have this coaching situation. I just don't think there is a, there is a good way to do this that doesn't involve the coaching searches and the, the nature of the the recruiting cycle conflicting with one another. Yeah, it's a silly hype where you've got guys pulling out uh, bull pups from underneath the, the table to say they're committing to Georgia. Um, you know, t- try the, the hat dance, I call it, but they have multiple hats and they put one on. That's that's still going on. I will say this, though. It, it has been mitigated a bit because signing day comes in like Christmas season. I, I think less people pay attention that whole before that whole January, early February, was just a, a hype train. And, and a false hype train mostly for all these kids. And I, I know myself, I don't sit there and watch people commit on TV anymore because I've got, frankly, I've got better things to do. Um, and maybe it's just being older and, and, and knowing that, uh, you know, half these guys aren't going to start when, <laughs> when, they get, uh, when they get to the school, uh, according to the statistics. Yeah, that, that is such an interesting thing, too. It's simply because of when it is. I think what, it would happen, what happened before, because the signing day was in February, you had no college football for, yeah. you know, about a month or so, maybe a little less than that, but about a month or so. And the Super Bowl had normally had just been played. So it was just a nice dead week where all of this could happen. And it could, I don't know if it would take over the, the general sports news cycle because no. signing day is still something that is a little niche. But it would take over a big chunk of the new of the sports news cycle if for no reason other than there was nothing else going on. And you're right, in December there are bowl there's not just there is first of all there is college football stuff going on. There's bowl games being prepared for and even some of them about to be played. But it, it just in 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 life in general and sports in general, there's NFL games being played. There's just a lot more going on. So now that there's so little of the the stuff still needs to be done in early February 
it's dead, but there they're not there isn't this big hole that it's going to fill where oh yeah, we'll just focus on that. Yeah, and, and even then, the early signing day, you get uh, okay, Clemson's number one for now. You know, I, in in a way, it adds suspense to it that drags out until early February, but there's no closure to it, and, and maybe that's good, maybe that's bad. But um, yeah, and again, we will see. We'll see the same names at the at the top uh, this this week, uh, like we always do. And the the only the way I put that is, I did a story on it a few years ago where I kind of researched it. It really only matters that you're in the top ten. Uh, it, it really only benefits those teams that are in the top ten. Maybe that's a, a circular argument. Well, you're in the top ten because you play football well, but. You know, when you move up from 27th to 20th, it's you know that's that's nice news for the alums, but it only the the, the best teams get the best players. I guess is what I'm going. No, no, uh, but that that is true. Line. There's there's marginal like if you're a consistent top five recruiting team, yeah. Yeah. that's significant. If you're a yeah. consistent top ten, that's significant. If you sort of jockey between. 15 and 25 like yeah. i don't know how significant that is because you often see i mean to a perfect example you know nebraska has sort of mostly jockeyed between about 25 and and 15 for most of the past decade or so generally recruits better than Wisconsin and Iowa, but Wisconsin and Iowa have outperformed Nebraska significantly over that time, which just sort of makes it say like, like it's good. Like I definitely want to recruit better than, than not. I want to, I want to be high up in these rankings, but at a certain point the the margin of return is pretty minimal. Yeah. And even, you know, I, I hate to bring up uh, USC again, but a lot of it is a function of the amount of scholarships you have to give. I've been reminded of that every year. If you've got 25 to give, you're going to have a better chance. If if you get a halfway decent class of being ranked higher by 24-7 or whoever than somebody who had 16, and you go, oh, that, I guess that makes sense. But, you know, you've got more chances to get more talent in there. And that's what's happening a little bit to U.S. They're not recruiting well. I'm not going to say that, but they've only got – a, a fraction to give this year, and I don't think. Boy, I want to say this, but don't hold me to it. I don't know if they have any uh, four stars in their class right now. Yeah, I think they managed to add a couple in the last. Uh, yeah. in, in the last little bit of here to 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 knock it up a little bit. But yeah, part of it is uh, no a lot of linemen, and I think that holds your grade back, yeah. and a lot of uh, no quarterbacks. I think until recently, and also a relatively small class, which also you know the other thing. And I don't know if you read had a chance to read the athletic went back and graded the class from five years ago, and they they've sort of made this a tradition now. They've got the manpower to go back and and, and sort of yeah. re rank all these classes. One of the things that I think, and I I think I made reference to this in another in another article, the simple retention is something I think that we underrate. I think Texas had a class under Charlie Strong that was like a top five class, and then you sort of go back and go, wow, like why isn't Texas any good if they had this top five class under Charlie Strong? Well, about two thirds of the about a third of the class, like just left like these kids just yeah. never like i think that's an <laughs> underrated thing that we we tend not to evaluate simple retention is really hard <laughs> yeah if you if you get half your class to start that's huge you know in their careers if at some point in their careers they start because you've got you've got academics you've got retention you've got transfers you've got injuries you've got guys that just don't pan out 
that are on the roster from one reason or another. But if you go, yeah, five years is a hell of a long time to go back and grade those classes. And those that do it the best, you know, they've got those guys that after five years are in the NFL or getting close to being in the NFL by that point. Um, but that's, that keeps coming back to me. I was told once, if you get half the guys in your class to be started, that's a huge hit rate. Okay, so last thing for you before I let you go, Dennis, and that is, um, again, we may mention the fact that you uh, you live in Kansas, so you are you are just a stone's throw away from the national champ from the national champion, the Super Bowl champion, uh, <laughs> the national champion. yeah, Kansas City Chiefs. I, I, I want to ask you this because uh, somebody asked me this when I was having my Super Bowl party because I'm the I'm the football expert in my Super Bowl party yeah. in Brooklyn, and that is, you know, where did Pat Mahomes go to school, and was he good? <laughs> and and because you know because my, my wife knows a little football so she you know she's around me so she hears me talk about who wins the Heisman and who are the big stars and she understands like who are the big time programs in college football so if I say Patrick Mahomes she knows that okay that name doesn't sound familiar and I say Texas Tech she goes well that's not a team that wins a lot of championships no. so where did this guy come from so what I'll ask you is when you were watching Mahomes in college, did you think he could be this? No, no, certainly not like okay. this. I mean, right. in, in the Big 12, he was well-known because of the Texas Tech offense. Puts up a lot of points in Cliff Kingsbury and everything else. But, and he had, he had one, I think, notable shootout between him and Baker, and Baker where I think both teams scored in the 60s. But, look, all you have to do is look at his draft position. It was considered a reach, and I would say maybe a huge reach for the for the Chiefs to trade up the number 10 to get him. Um, so if you just take that as a fact, even then, I don't know if anybody thought he could be what he could be. Um, he he played three years, started for two at, the, at Texas Tech, went to one bowl game and lost it. Um, and a lot of that has to do with coaching and, and the players around him. But he was in a system – that suited him that, you know, it just hit with Andy Reid, who's a fantastic play caller. We all know that now at a time when the NFL was changing and Andy Reid and his coaches and the general manager, there's a the famous line, Brett Beach before they drafted him. And it's still out there and he doesn't back down to that. He said, this guy's the best player I've ever seen. Yeah. And he didn't hear it till this year, but he apparently did say that when they were drafting him and even Andy Reid's eyebrows went up and okay, we're going to see. And he's really, really good. But, but no, just because in the Big 12, there, there's always a lot of good quarterbacks. And, yeah, he was very good. But Texas Tech wasn't winning at a high level. And, and Oklahoma with Baker was a, was a better story. You know, Baker had been at Texas Tech and, and flourished at Oklahoma. Yeah, it's interesting because the um... – I think, well, first of all, I always tell people, you know, the more I've been in this business, the more I try to tell people, like, I don't really know how to project these guys to the NFL. Yeah. I, I realize more and more how little I know, like the, like that scout's eye that is able to, listen, I, I can make an educated guess, but that scout's eye that's able to separate the player from his environment, so how are good are his receivers? How good are the players around him? How good are his competition? That's what really being a scout is all about. Like looking at this player in a singular way where you can spot the talent despite the environment that he's playing in. And I can't really do that. But what happens is because of the Big 12 and because of Texas Tech and that offense, 
it was really hard. Like I always knew Mahomes was a fun player to watch, yeah. and that he there, there was something there with his athleticism and his arm that could be a combination that could make him a very interesting pro prospect. But even when I remember, even when he said he was coming out early, it raised my eyebrows to think like, oh wow, that's interesting. Like, well, yeah. he's a really good player, but like I don't know if that's going to really work out for him. So I think again, the way we watch games, it was hard to separate the player from the environment to make you realize, oh my gosh, this really is a special play. He is different from all these other Big 12 quarterbacks. He is much different from the Greers and the and, and all the other guys yeah. in, in, the, in the Big, and all the other kids who have con- gone through Texas Tech, right? The Cliff Kingsburys and the Graham Harrells and all these great players who went there who were great college players who put up massive numbers. It was just hard for, I think, a lot of us to see what he could become because, again, the environment that he was playing in was geared towards his success. And we didn't see the no-look passes, and we didn't see the, the left-handed passes and you know his ability to lead a team from behind so many times. Um, yeah, no, I, I think you're right. Yeah, I had that same feeling when he came out. It's like, okay, this is interesting. I don't know if he's ready, but we'll see. Uh, and then living here, when they did trade up to get him, I, Andy Reid is so good. I go, you know, I'm going to trust him and, and figure out that they've seen something that nobody else has seen because that was the year Mitch Trubisky got picked second overall uh, by the Bears. And, and Deshaun and went after Deshaun went after Mahomes, Deshaun right? Went after him, yeah. Right, and, and, so which, that, and even that was shocking to, to, to us. Again, these people who had watched Deshaun Watson play and win national championship against this, you know, Alabama win a national championship against Alabama of all teams, and we thought, wow, how can Deshaun be? What was it, the eleventh or twelfth pick here? Yeah. Uh, with two, not just one quarterback, but Mitch Trubisky, who started for one year at North Carolina, yeah. and this guy who put up these big numbers in the Big 12. Like, what's going on here? Well, we were right on one hand, but we were wrong on the other. And that Deshaun's a great player, but Patrick Mahomes is just another is another species. And they all came in at a time when the NFL was just changing the way it thinks about offense. You've seen that now. The Chiefs have done it better than anybody. But even Trubisky under Nagy, at the Bears, he's a spread guy. Um, you see what Deshaun Watson has done at Houston. And, you know, I, I think with the success of Patrick Mahomes, it's just going to continue in the, in the NFL. They've just taken those concepts from college and, and tried to refine them. You know, his Patrick Mahomes' best play might have been that run for a touchdown in the AFC Championship game against the Titans. I still don't believe what he did. <laughs> um, type roping the sidelines, taking on two cornerbacks and, and getting in. So, yeah, he is special. Dennis Dodd from CBS Sports, thanks so much for joining me today on the uh, AP Top 25 College Football Podcast. Enjoy what little off-season that we have these days, because there's always something going on. It is. And, uh, and hopefully we'll cross pads in person real soon. Ralph, thanks so much. Appreciate it. And now, three and out. First down. A little bit of breaking news of sorts on this three and out. Because it just happened while I'm recording. Vanderbilt Athletic Director Malcolm Turner is resigning about a year after he took the job. The school is promoting Candace Story, a former basketball player at the school, to interim AD. She will be the first African-American woman to be an athletic director in the SEC. Story has a loaded resume in college athletic administration and seems imminently qualified for the opportunity. The problem, of course, is the opportunity she is being handed is a difficult undertaking. Vanderbilt's athletic department has struggled to keep up with the SEC 
in football forever, but it has been able to compete at a high level in other sports like basketball and baseball. The football problems, though, are weighing down the rest of the athletic department, and a few bad seasons in hoops have complicated matters. Turner was the NBA G League president before taking over at Vandy, an off-the-radar hire who had never been an AD. He was practically forced to retain football coach Derek Mason after another losing season last year because of financial difficulties within the department. Now Turner is out, and Story, who the late David Williams had been grooming as his replacement, will be thrust into a situation that only got worse in the year since a search firm led Vandy to Turner. These are tough times in Nashville. Second down. Former Stanford quarterback K.J. Costello has announced that he will join Mississippi State and Mike Leach this season as a graduate transfer, immediately eligible to play. Costello was considering Washington, which seemed like a more natural fit for a Southern California kid who has played in the Pac-12. There is speculation among UW fans that Costello was not granted admission to the grad program he needed to get into at Washington, but that's just speculation, and it is also something that fans might say if their school was spurned. Frankly, I would not be surprised if that did play a factor into Costello's decision, but I can't confirm that with certainty, and there are a lot of grad programs at Washington. I find it hard to believe that if that's where he really wanted to go, that the Stanford graduate could not have found a program to make that happen. So let's look at this from a football decision. I think about what that says about the state of college football today and really the state of football in general. Here is this Pac-12 quarterback, stereotypical pro-style passer, big kid, not particularly mobile, big arm. Fascinating to think that with one year to show out and prove himself to NFL evaluators after injuries killed his 2019 season, that he would decide his best route is an SEC school running an air raid offense. It wasn't so long ago, as Dennis and I alluded to, that NFL teams looked down on quarterbacks that played that style. Not anymore. Third down. One last thought on the Super Bowl. I got a kick from my Twitter timeline lighting up with congratulations from schools to their former players who are on the Chiefs. This happened Sunday night right after the Game 1 final. The most notable one to me was Oklahoma congratulating Chiefs running back Damian Williams, who was kicked off the team during his senior year at OU. Now, no official reason was ever given for Coach Bob Stoops' decision beyond violation of team rules. And Williams was allowed to participate at Oklahoma's Pro Day a few months later. So it probably wasn't that bad of a violation. I won't speculate, but you can feel free to. Williams went undrafted, but has found a home in KC after an uneventful stint with Miami. Certainly not a big deal, but it was odd for OU to claim online a player it dismissed from the team and say that that player had OU DNA, but anything for recruiting. That's the show for today. I'd like to thank my producer, Warren Levinson, for making me sound good. You can find this podcast at Apple Podcast and on Westwood One Podcast. Please subscribe so you do not miss an episode. 
I'm Ralph Russo, the college football writer with the Associated Press. Thanks for listening, and come back for more next week of the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast. This podcast is presented by Regions Bank. You're chasing your goals, and it's up to you how you want to get there. Let Regions Bank coach you with financial tips that fit your everyday grind. Visit regions.com slash next hyphen step to learn more. Regions, member FDIC.